Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Ross Melzer, and on behalf of your active, it's my pleasure to welcome you to our latest policy debate, working towards a stronger circular economy, how much regulation is needed. Our event today is supported by VDMA, and they are the association representing the German mechanical engineering industry. Once our speakers have given their opening statements, we're going to turn to our panel discussion, and we do look forward to your questions via the Q&A function on the right-hand side of your screen. Uh, so please don't be shy to ask your, your questions, and don't be shy to tweet uh, either. If you are going to tweet, the hashtag to use is in front of me here, hashtag EADebates. So working together, towards a stronger circular economy. To kick things off, I'm going to present a quick overview of where we are in the legislative uh, agenda. In order to achieve the EU's 2050 climate neutrality target, the European Commission is planning to announce new initiatives addressing the entire life cycle of products. Since the publication of the Green Deal and the new Circular Economy Action Plan, the topic of a new European product initiative for sustainable products has been on the policy agenda. And con concrete proposals are due to be presented in the first quarter of next year. In a moment, we'll hear from William Neal at uh, DG Environment at the European Commission, and he may be able to give us an update uh, on the exact timing. But central to all of this is the plan to establish a horizontal sustainable products initiative. So the sustainable products initiative is meant to be a cornerstone of the EU's endeavors to create a circular economy. It will include proposals to revise the eco-design directive and other legislative measures with the aim to make products placed on the EU market more sustainable. And the potential of digital will be key to provide detailed information about the composition and nature of products for effective reuse or recycling of goods. We're expecting the Sustainable Products Initiative to include rules for setting requirements on mandatory sustainability labeling and disclosure of information to market actors along value chains in the form of a digital product passport. A concern of industry is that such bureaucratic demands, especially for SMEs, will create some burdens. Um, many industry stakeholders recognize that they can learn from the collection and the processing of circular economy data, but some are worried that a digital passport um, could mean the disclosure of internal company data and technological know-how, which may put them at a competitive disadvantage. So as with much EU legislation, it really is a question of striking the right balance, a sensible balance that ideally will satisfy policymakers, industry, civil society, and of course, EU consumers. To discuss all these issues this morning, we're joined by William Neal, who is the advisor for circular economy at DG Environment at the European Commission, Ruben Decker, policy coordinator in the field of circular economy at the Ministry of Environment of the Netherlands, Jean-Marc Simon, who is executive director at Zero Waste Europe, Emma Watkins, senior policy analyst, uh, low carbon and circular economy at the Institute for European Environmental Policy, and last but not least, Carl Heusken, who is president of VDMA. 
To kick off the debate, I've asked William Neal to set the scene and to take us through the, the Commission's thinking behind the Sustainable Products Initiative, including the different data sets that will be required under the initiative. And William, in, in your opening statement, I'd also ask you to touch upon um, this concept of balance uh, that I've just spoken about. So William, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, Ross, and good morning, everybody. And um, I thought that I would try to address the the sub-question in the title of this event. I think the, the title is very interesting, how much regulation is needed? Uh, now, I'm a bureaucrat. Um, uh, we're, we're managing regulation. Uh, I'm also an economic historian by uh, academic background. Um, so I thought I'd try and start with the big picture, which is um, basically well, I'll try to give you 50 years of environment policy in two minutes. Um, we had environment policy really developing from the 1970s on the back of several environmental catastrophes um, and also the need for a sort of level playing field to back up the single market. And so we had 20 years of regulation. We had 200 connection. Um, it seems that uh, William has a problem with his uh, connection, so we will come back to William as soon as he is able to uh, reconnect. But um, in the meantime, uh, I'd like to ask Ruben Decker. Um, Ruben, could you um, uh, talk to us a little bit about how this legislation is perceived by the Dutch, please? Yes, thank you, Ross, and good morning to everyone. And I hope William comes back because I was counting on reflecting on what he was going to say, as you'll understand. But yes, I can say a few things uh, of what, what we expect the, the initiative uh, to bring, uh, and maybe first to start indeed with, with some national context. So the Dutch government already uh, about five years ago um, decided that uh, the Dutch economy should be fully circular. Uh, by the year 2050 and in between we have set a, a halfway target if you like in 2030 to have a 50 percent reduction in primary raw material use um, now uh, looking at that from a perspective of uh, an eu market this means if our if our economy is to be fully circular of course the products on our market being the eu market need to be circular too they need to fit in that circular economy and that means they have to be, uh, you know, they have to be robust. They have to have a long lifetime. If something goes wrong, they need to be repairable. Um, they need to be recyclable at the end of their lifetime, and they need to contain recycled content because, uh, for lack of the primary raw materials, we want to get rid of. Uh, we will have to reuse the materials in these products, and this all needs to be uh, set at European level. So this is why we have very high expectations of the Sustainable Products Initiative uh, to help us achieve these goals. And we're very much encouraged by what we've already read in, uh, first of all, the Circular Economy Action Plan, of course, but also documents that have come out uh, since, um, which also state that the intention of the Commission is to make products uh, on the EU market sustainable. In principle, all of them should be sustainable. So where today, rather, the, the sustainable products are the exemption, the ones where you uh, pay a bit more for, this needs to be reversed. All products in the EU market should by default be sustainable unless there's very strong arguments why there is no alternative. And that's where we need to go in the long run. And then we're also encouraged by the approach to try and approach this through the eco-design legislation, um, which might not be much more than a widening of the existing eco-design directive such that we can apply it to other product groups. 
which allows for a certain graduality in, in tackling more and more product groups to achieve uh, the sustainability of, uh, of products. So this is how we would see it working and how it would serve also um, our goals uh, in the Netherlands. Um, there's much more detail to discuss, but I, I won't do that for the sake of time. But uh, let, let me end by, let me close for now by saying we really have very high expectations of this initiative and we hope it comes forward um, very quickly without uh, much further delay so we can get to work on it uh, and quickly put it into practice. Okay, thank you uh, for those initial thoughts, Ruben. Um, we're still reconnecting uh, William, but in the, in the meantime, uh, before turning to our other panelists, we're going to hear a short video statement from David Comont, who is a French MEP from the Greens European Free Alliance Group, and he's also a member of uh, IMCO uh, uh, in the European Parliament. So uh, could we play that video? Bonjour please? à toutes et à tous. Un grand merci à Euractiv pour votre invitation et de m'accueillir pour cette conférence autour d'une économie circulaire en Europe. Il y a beaucoup de choses à dire à ce sujet, mais pour ces remarques d'ouverture, je vais tâcher de me concentrer sur un angle en particulier que je soumets aux autres intervenants d'aujourd'hui. Nous savons que si tout le monde consommait comme les Européennes et les Européens, il ne nous faudrait pas moins de trois planètes. Le Parlement l'a rappelé également, une très grande majorité de l'impact environnemental d'un produit, c'est-à-dire de son empreinte écologique globale, vient de sa phase de production. La logique extractiviste du modèle économique dominant actuel est intenable car la prédation sur les ressources naturelles nécessaires à son entretien altère et détruit de manière irréversible les milieux naturels. De plus, les objets ainsi conçus et commercialisés ne le sont pas pour durer. Le plus souvent, sitôt produits, ils deviennent des déchets dont une infime partie sont conçus pour être réutilisés, réparés ou recyclés. Pour vous dire les choses franchement, je ne pense pas que nous pouvons seulement miser sur une meilleure recyclabilité des matériaux pour remédier à cette situation. Bien entendu, il faudrait légiférer pour imposer l'éco-design des objets manufacturés afin qu'ils soient conçus dès le début pour que l'ensemble des composants nécessaires à leur fabrication soient recyclables. Mais nous devons, pour commencer, chercher à garder les produits en circulation sur le marché le plus longtemps possible. Le meilleur produit recyclé est celui qui n'a pas besoin de l'être, c'est-à-dire celui que l'on continue d'utiliser. Cela suppose une innovation radicale par rapport au paradigme économique actuel qui produit, consomme et dispose à un rythme effréné. Pour parvenir à une économie durable, il devient fondamental que les consommateurs et les consommatrices, que les entreprises, conservent les produits le plus longtemps possible que la réparation devienne la norme et que le marché de la seconde main devienne majoritaire dans le mix de la consommation. Une des clés pour cette réalisation est bien sûr la bonne information. Connaître précisément l'impact et la qualité environnementale d'un produit, un affichage obligatoire standard européen de la durabilité et de la réparabilité est fondamental pour que les produits les plus performants pour l'environnement deviennent la norme sur le marché. Introduire des compteurs d'usage, un procédé similaire aux compteurs kilométriques sur les voitures, pour les produits pour lesquels c'est pertinent, pensez à une machine à laver, permettra également de booster la confiance des consommateurs dans la seconde main. Cette information doit également servir à pénaliser les acteurs qui ne jouent pas le jeu de la durabilité. 
La lutte contre les allégations vertes et la publicité trompeuse rejoint le volet de la bonne information des consommateurs. Un autre grand cheval de bataille sera la lutte contre l'obsolescence prématurée des objets. La durabilité doit devenir la norme. Aligner les garanties légales avec la durée de vie estimée d'un produit et en faire porter la charge financière sur les producteurs et les distributeurs permettra de généraliser la réparation. Si nous parvenons à sécuriser la rétention des produits sur le marché le plus longtemps possible, alors toutes les mesures sur l'éco-conception et les objectifs de recyclabilité et de matériaux recyclés pourront véritablement avoir un impact. Merci encore pour votre invitation et je me réjouis de nos échanges sur cette évolution majeure de notre économie. Bon travail. Well, that's uh, very interesting to get the um, parliamentary view from uh, a Green member of, of Parliament and our other panelists. Please feel free to comment on that as we uh, turn to our panel discussion later. Um, William, we're delighted to have you back. Uh, I think you realize that uh, we, we actually lost you um, right at the very beginning of your intervention. Uh, we did hear from uh, David uh, in the meantime, and also from Ruben, who was talking about how the Netherlands is uh, fully um, committed to be circular by uh, 2050, and the products on the market need to comply. Um, with that, and he's very much looking forward to hearing more about the Sustainable Products Initiative that is um, uh, due out uh, next or proposed uh, ne next year. So um, apologies to, to ask you to re-deliver your opening statement, but now the floor really is yours. Yes, thank you, Ross, and uh, my apologies. I was speaking to myself for, for four minutes of the five. So. Um, what I was trying to do was um, uh, try and give a bit of the big picture. So um, I was explaining that um, environment policy only came in uh, at European level in the 1970s on the back of a few environmental disasters. And it was a very legislative approach. Um, we had 20 years um, of with 200 pieces of regulation in 20 years, really based on sort of polluter pays principle. And then environment became um, uh, well, it came into the treaty in the Single European Act in 86. Uh, sustainable development became uh, an, a European Union objective um, in the Amsterdam Treaty in 1997. Um, but throughout those decades, it was very much regulation based and based on pol punishing polluters. Um, 2009, uh, when uh, Janusz Potocznik became uh, Environment Commissioner, um, he set up the resource efficiency platform and then we moved towards the, the circular economy strategy, uh, which then uh, was reborn into the circular action plan. Um, and this was really uh, groundbreaking. We already had sustainable consumption and production instruments. Um, you know, we had uh, 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 EMAS and uh, green public procurement and so on. But really to do this in a, in a strategic way was, was really a reaction to um, the great acceleration in resource use globally, and also the, the realization that we needed not only to have a regulatory approach. Now, so first circular economy action plan, we did regulation, we, we reviewed the, the waste um, regulations, um, but we also brought in the, uh, a strategic approach to one key value chain, which is plastics, uh, which was groundbreaking. With this circular economy action plan, we've continued that approach um, to key value chains. 
But the real groundbreaking thing is a new way of using regulation for uh, sustainability and circularity, and that is using single market regulation. Uh, and this is a, a fundamental uh, change. I think it's really groundbreaking. Okay, we had eco-design, we've had it for quite a, a, a few years. But nevertheless, I, I think that um, uh, using, in, in partnership with GROW, because very much we're, we're talking about a, 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 um, a joint effort here between Environment, GROW and DG, NR and other services of the Commission, it's very important that you know, we're, we're really using GROW's tools, the single market tools for environmental objectives. Um, so I think it's it's a regulatory approach, if you like, but it's very different from the old punishing polluters approach. We're really talking about um, uh, privileging good design. We're talking about uh, providing a level playing field, dealing, uh, making sure that we don't have market fragmentation. We're talking about uh, promoting innovation, promoting efficiency and optimization of products. So it's not, it's not this sort of hippies versus suits uh, you know, more regulation or less regulation or better regulation um, uh, debate. It's really about how, how we're using a regulation uh, in a new way uh, for sustainability. Now, why products? Um, well, circular economy is a little bit about recycling, is a little bit about waste. It's quite a lot about resource efficiency at the input stage. So, you know, uh, uh, better use of resources um, at the beginning of the of the value chain but it's a lot about slowing down the use of those resources as they flow through the economy in terms of you know, embodied in products and uh, infrastructure and buildings and so on and this, this is really the biggest um, potential for circularity it's slowing down that river of resources making it to more of a lake so that we're using those resources for as long as possible and we're optimizing them. Now many of those resources and much of the energy is embodied in the products that we use and if we're throwing them away too quickly, if they don't last long enough, if we're not optimizing their use then we're, we're really losing all that opportunity. So um, we really need to make sure that we are, uh, that the products that are put on our markets are uh, designed to be durable, repairable and so on and this and this is what we try to do uh, in the um, Sustainable Product Initiative. So um, it's a, a process, uh, um, uh, it will be a process rather like eco-design, um, but bringing in circular criteria, so things like durability, repairability, and, and so on. Um, and as you say, we're looking towards that being adopted um, at, in the first quarter of next year. We're now working on refining the uh, impact assessment so we're looking at the different policy options so that's still uh, under development you mentioned the digital aspect of it now um, uh, the digital revolution has also happened really in the last 10 years and I said that circularity circular economy is about value retention now so much of the value of a product these days is bound up in the data which is attached to it but as those products are, are making their journey through the economy they're losing so much of that data and so much of the opportunities for business to business value retention uh, and optimization uh, are lost because the data isn't there uh, same goes for end of life uh, in terms of you know recycling and and, and um, clean high quality recyclers so much of that value value is lost because we don't have the data and again also for consumers uh, in, in terms of making sustainable choices um, they, they need the data and to be able to process that data so the digital product passport is looking at making that data available 
you suggested that this will be a big burden for business. We're talking about um, uh, mostly existing data. We're talking about a decentralized or distributed approach so the data doesn't have to move from where it was created. It, it's not about sort of um, typing in um, all the data again onto some big server in Brussels. Um, and also businesses are already doing this. I mean, uh, in terms of tracking and tracing for logistics, for inventorizing and so on, it's already happening. Um, we're seeing already several initiatives, private sector driven um, uh, in things like batteries, electric vehicle batteries and textiles and so on, um, doing this already using tracking and tracing for circularity because there is a business case for it. Um, what we try to do um, with the digital product passport will be to make sure that that is also working in the public interest. So certain bits of data which might not otherwise be um, used but are in the public interest should be made available rather in the uh, overall approach taken by our whole data strategy in our forthcoming data act so it's really harnessing data for public good so of course where it comes to intellectual property privacy and so on we need to make sure that those are dealt with either through encryption or through um, making data available at a later date or, I mean, in each case this will be done product by product uh, and in full consultation. So happy to go into that in greater detail later on, but I'll leave it there and uh, we can get on with some of the other presentations. And I hope that you heard my whole um, introduction this time. Thank you. Thank you, William. We heard you very well. And that's a, a great overview uh, of the past 20 years and how regulation uh, is, has moved and, and continues to uh, change away from this punishing polluters uh, concept. Um, I'd like to turn now to Jean-Marc Simon. Um, uh, uh, having heard from the policymakers, what, what's your view on the Commission's plan? And, and do you think the, the Commission is getting this, this balance right, Jean-Marc? Yes, good morning, and, and thanks for the invitation. Um, um, yeah, I, I think the Commission is doing the right thing. Um, um, I think that the question of what regulation we need to create a circular economy um is the right one and also framing it from a perspective of uh of, of of going beyond what we have had so far um for me the starting point is that what we know today is that we don't know as, at least as citizens and most of us have our homes filled with toxic chemicals presence in furniture in floorings in concrete uh we don't have access to locally produced uh, seasonal food or able to make responsible choices when buying clothes it equipment or toys and when shopping, it's impossible to know whether a product is safe, repairable, recyclable, or durable. So from that perspective, I think information um, is important for consumers. I think it's also information is, is going to be key for producers. And what we are seeing is that um, that's a competitive advantage for those companies that want to stand out in the market. Um, how actually knowing the product that you're putting in the market um, and knowing how that actually brings added value. Um, uh, the the, the challenge, though, is that um, we know very well that um, that information is not enough to change behavior. And yeah, we know that like if if, if that would be true, basically we would all be healthier and would be eating less, uh, I don't know, um, eating sugary drinks or fatty, fatty food. So um, I think the, the, the digital product passport is essential, is very important. Uh, but I think it's, it's not enough. 
I mean, again, we, we need the repairability, uh, durability, safety requirements. We need to work on misleading green claims. And these are requirements for producers. And I think that those are necessary. And uh, But we also need to be uh, proportionate uh, on the burden we put on the industry. Because if we look at it from, like, take your experience or my own experience, um, when you buy uh, a so-called a sustainable product, take the most efficient, uh, energy efficient hair dryer in the market, you buy it and it breaks, um, what do you do with it? I mean, you could know you could know everything that is in the hair dryer. Um, you can know that it's safe, you can know that it's repairable, uh, you know it's very energy efficient, but when it breaks, where do you send it? And I think that uh, that's for me a key issue that is maybe not being discussed enough is how do we build the infrastructure so that uh, this, uh, that we can actually send back or bring back the products when they break, when they need to be repaired, when they need to be um, recycled, etc., back to a place where actually the value of the material is preserved. Bringing it to like the uh, chaterie uh, or like a drop-off point where you know that's going to be actually um, so-called recycled, but mostly it's it's. Uh, it's not going to be repaired for sure. I mean, you, we have already lost the battle there. So for me, a sustainability is important that we have the information, but we need to work on infrastructure. And I think that that's something that is uh, that is overlooked. Um, and when it comes to legislation, um, I feel that the legislation we, we are working on still is based on the idea that the products that we put in the market needs to be sustainable. But how do we connect that to the fact that we want the companies to most companies to get back their own products so that they have an interest in knowing what is in there so that because they know how to produce them because they need to put the spare parts in the market and um uh, and yeah and because this way also consumers have the way to preserve uh value and for me that's that's the part that is uh, it is uh, it is missing in the conversation information is good uh, requirements are good but we need the infrastructure to make uh, this work. Otherwise, it's like asking a car producer to build their own roads. We don't do that, right? So when you need to know that uh, if you're a small company and you put a product in the market, you don't need to build yourself the infrastructure to take back your stuff. It would be good that you have infrastructure that takes back mattresses, that takes back um, um, repair computers to be repaired or washing machines. And these are kind of the roads of circularity for the European economy, which today don't exist. Today, the the roads in the in the in the European economy as, are all for linear products. These are roads that go straight into the landfill incineration or downcycling plant. And that's what needs to be changed. OK, well, th thank you for those initial comments, Jeremy. We'll certainly come back to this uh, point on, on infrastructure because it is an important one. But before we do, uh, Emma Watkins, um, what, what are your initial thoughts, please, Emma? Um, well, one of the, the things that I think is, is worth highlighting is that the new um, focus, well, the renewed focus on product is, is really important uh, and it's uh, highly justified. Um, just a couple of statistics to, to justify that focus on product in, in the circular economy approach. Um, the production of goods, including food, uh, actually accounts for a fifth of the EU's total emissions. So it's very um you know, very important in terms of the climate uh, objectives. Uh, and in 2019, less than 12% of the materials used to produce uh, products in the EU27 were actually recycled. So there's a lot to be done uh, in using the actual recycled material. Um, 
to achieve uh, complex policy objectives like circular economy, like more sustainable products, uh, I think it's important to highlight that uh, a mix of policy approaches is needed. And I think that's what the Commission is trying to do with this uh, sustainable products uh, initiative. Um, experience, I think, has told us that uh, trying to do something like this through one single piece of legislation or one uh, single type of policy instrument doesn't tend to, to work too well. Uh, so it's good to have that mix of policies in place. Um, another uh, part of the picture where I think there's a balance that needs to be struck uh, is at the different levels of governance, so the different levels that action can be taken. Uh, I think it's uh, appropriate that at the EU level um, there are overarching objectives set, so emissions reductions, targets, uh, targets for recyclability and for recycled content, those, those kinds of issues, uh, and also uh, common product standards or criteria. That's obviously very well done at, at the EU level to ensure that uh, circularity is, is EU-wide. Um, then at the member state level, um, there are actions that can be taken, such as uh, using economic instruments, taxes, uh, fees, etc., to, to make sure that the prices are right for recycled products or, or sustainable products as opposed to less sustainable products. Uh, business and industry obviously has a, a huge role to play. Manufacturers do innovate uh, to some extent on their own because, you know, it's, it's good for business, obviously. Um, but in some cases, it's also helpful to have that legislation uh, as part of the picture to, to push in a certain direction. Uh, and then, as, as has also been said already, uh, the consumers and individuals, uh, all of us have our role to play in making a good product choices. But it's crucial that we have the right information uh, in order to do that. Um, so that I think that's where the, the digital potential comes in, the digital product passports. Um, they're not just providing information for policymakers and you know, making producers provide that information, but they're also uh, very worthwhile, I think, uh, from the consumer side. Um, yeah, I think I'll leave it there for now and uh, then we can uh, pick up some other points during the discussion. That's great, Emma. Thank you for those initial remarks. So, um, Carl Huysgen, what's the view of um, industry on the Commission's proposal? It seems like we look at um, at the whole issue from a, from a, from a different perspective. Um, if you listen uh, to the examples that we have heard so far, um, we've been talking exclusively um, about consumer goods. Um, and I'm representing um, the mechanical engineering industry, which is basically, um, we are the people that produce components, machines, um, manufacturing lines to make such products. And it is very typical for such machines that they do have a very long lifetime. The average lifetime, for example, uh, for, a, for a drilling machine, um, a metal drilling machine um, is over 20 years. Um, I'm representing a company that does hydraulic components and uh, hydraulic systems, and we still uh, service uh, power units that we have uh, delivered uh, decades ago. Um, and also a major difference is uh, Juan um, has mentioned infrastructure for serviceability. Um, this is in place in the case of industry. Um, and it's uh, simply due to the fact that a machine has a much higher value than a consumer good. Uh, so the guy who runs the machine has a basic interest uh, to, to um, make it last long um, before he has to buy another one. And the most of those machines that are produced, they have a second life somewhere else. So um, if the original buyer is uh, investing in a new machine, the old machine is not going uh, to be thrown away, but it goes into a second life cycle. 
um, maybe in another factory or, um, or in another country. So we do have totally different uh, characteristics. And um, it is very important to see that if you look at the circular economy, um, the mechanical engineering industry is kind of the enabler uh, of a circular economy because, because you cannot think of any recycling uh, process. Uh, you cannot think of any logistic infrastructure, um, as mentioned uh, by Juan Mark, which does not consist um, of equipment made by the mechanical engineering industry. So we're kind of the enabler industry to make um, such systems work. Now we all share uh, the objective um, of getting into a circular economy. Um, I personally believe it's it's key. Um, it's it's more much more important than many other issues uh, we talk about um, um, in these days. And if you look at the digital product path, which is uh, the proposal on the table, for us it is key that there is a clear differentiation between um, consumer goods, mass production goods, with a relatively short lifetime on the one side, and long-lasting investment goods, which are normally produced in low or maximum medium quantities, um, on the other side. We cannot apply the same regulation to both. Um, a few words on regulation, I very much uh, liked uh, William's uh, introductory uh, statement. Um, there, there is a history, a positive history of um, environmental or sustainability uh, regulation in Europe. And I think this is something we, we can really be proud of and it uh, uh, sets us um, ahead of other um, regions um, in the world. So there is no objection from from the industry against regulation. You know, I, I don't see that. It's sometimes it's it's kind. You know, people paint it like kind of a conflict, but it's not a kind of a conflict. Uh, regulation is a must, um, and uh, the big question is what is a smart and efficient regulation. And this is why, if you look at the DDP, um, um, we strongly call for a differentiated um, approach, um, as mentioned before. So, so far um, at this point in time, and uh, let's go to the discussion. Okay, thank you, Colm. I'm actually going to pick up on uh, something you just brought up in your uh, initial remarks. And it's this idea of uh, a one-size-fits-all uh, approach when designing circular economy, economy um, legislation. So, in other words, should all manufacturing companies, regardless of size, be asked to provide this same level of detail? Or perhaps should SPI requirements um, be established on a sector-by-sector on -sector or product-by-product -product, uh, basis, taking into account the differences in sectors in products? Um, William, I'll come to you in a second, but uh, just, just as um, Ruben didn't have the chance to uh, fully um, respond to your initial remarks, um, Ruben, let me give you the floor, and can you try and address this question of um, whether one-size-fits-all is appropriate uh, in designing circular economy legislation? Thanks, Russ. Well, yeah, well, it's more a question for William, I'd have to say. But in our view, um, um, well, yes and no. We've I mean, on the one hand, we have Europe, we have European legislation um, to set the level playing field for everyone. So all products on the EU market have to comply with the same uh, levels, with the same uh, uh, standards, uh, exactly to have fair competition also for smaller players because otherwise you would actually be um, be hurting the the smaller ones as compared to the to the bigger ones uh, and at the same time no because yes we understand that 
what you need for a circular economy, what you need to make products more sustainable, will vary between product groups, of course, with the millions and millions of different products on the EU market. You will not be able to design one single set of requirements or, or, or approaches that will cover all of them. So this, this will always be a mix of, of, of general uh, rules and principles. I heard uh, Ms. Watkins say a few things about that, maybe objectives, maybe standards that can apply to all products, but that will necessarily be limited because it's not specific enough. And at the same time, you will need more in-depth approach per product category to slowly but surely um, cover more and more product groups uh, in a more uh, tailor-made way uh, to really address circularity issues specific for those products. This is the, the balancing exercise, I think, that you also mentioned yourself, Ross, that we will have to do. It's sometimes nitty-gritty and boring, but it has to be done. Okay. Thank you. Um, Will, William, um, what's your view on this one, uh, one size fits all, uh, please? Well, I can certainly reassure Carl, um, because the whole approach, I mean, we're basing this um, on eco design. I mean, as I say, we're still in the, the process of um, uh, defining and arguing our preferred options in the impact assessment. Uh, but um, the whole approach, it's no secret, is based on eco design. It's based on the idea of having um, some uh, horizontal principles and scope definition. But that it's a process. It's um, it will be through delegated acts based on different product groups because we have to have a product group specific approach to the physical requirements um, uh, for products, but also to the data requirements. Um, and so we would envisage to have, um, uh, of, of course, some horizontal requirements, but but very much a product by product. Uh, based approach. So we, I mean, the, the kind of data that you would need for capital equipment uh, are completely different from, as you say, um, consumer products and from a, um, uh, a bottle of shampoo to uh, a smartphone, of course, the data requirements are going to be extremely different. Um, and I think that, uh, as Carl said, this has been happening, I mean, for a long period in capital equipment in, I mean, companies uh, doing business to business like Caterpillar or uh, Xerox have been um, repairing and th their machines for years and doing leasing uh, arrangements and, and providing their products as a service. So this has been happening for many years in those high value sectors. We really need to move that to consumer products without um, necessarily increasing the price of those products. And if we do, we we're talking very, in many cases about um, increasing access to those products so that uh, consumers don't have the initial outlay. And just to respond a little bit to what um, Jean-Marc was saying, because I think just as a corollary of what he said about the need for those that infrastructure, um, I think we should bring jobs into this as well, because if you have a, a hierarchy of value retention, if, you, if you're repairing things um, rather than recycling them, rather than landfilling them. The higher you go up that hierarchy, the more jobs are involved, the more job intensive it is, and many skills, not, not just low quality jobs, but all kinds of ranges of skills. And I think that bringing that infrastructure in should be one area that member states concentrate on in their recovery plans and, and the use of the recovery and resilience funds. Um, because if we're looking at renovation of buildings, if we're looking at many other aspects, the the economic and job potential of those services and that infrastructure is huge. Not, not uh, 
to mention the strategic autonomy um, uh, benefits. So I think there are, there are many wins there. I mean, we could debate about that for a long time, but we shouldn't ignore the, the employment possibilities. Yeah, no, so point well taken. Thank you, William. Uh, Emma, you had, you had something to add on this one-size-fits-all approach. Yeah, just to, to go back to that for, for a moment, um, I would agree with the, the previous panellists' uh, comments that it's uh, pretty unlikely to, to be appropriate in this case, uh, either in terms of products or in terms of the, the companies that, that are being, um, you know, that have to produce the, the passports. Um, you could perhaps envisage uh, an approach that's a little bit like what's done in some extended producer responsibility schemes. Um, so you could have uh, a certain set of kind of minimum information requirements that are required for all of the products uh, within the scope. Um, so kind of the more the more basic or the more headline figures. Uh, and then you could require more detail, for example, for products that have a higher environmental impact or for ones that are more commonly placed on the market in, in larger volumes or for producers who produce a lot more and place a lot more on the market. So I think you can potentially differentiate the, the information provision requirements uh, in those ways as well. Uh, maybe looking at uh, EPR schemes as a, a bit of inspiration. Okay, let me um, move on to a slightly different theme. A number of you brought up this idea of uh, the, the concept of information, uh, information on products, uh, product characteristics. And obviously this, um, this information needs to fulfill several criteria. It must be meaningful, easy to understand, reliable, comparable, verifiable. And um, it also must have an improvement potential from a sustainability uh, perspective. Uh, now, that's an awful lot. So how can all that be ensured? Uh, because the quality of data provided will be a key factor in the successful implementation um, of this legislation. Um, Joe Mark, you, you brought this up, and Emma, you, you alluded to it as well. But Joe Mark, um, what's your thoughts on this, please? How can it be ensured? Yeah, um, yes. Um, very quickly, as I said, um, I, I I agree that, uh, that we need a differentiated approach for uh, for different product categories. Not all information we need we need overarching like minimum standards for uh, across board, but then we need uh, specific um, information. However, as I said, like information is only one one, one factor. I think. Uh, it's uh, alone is, is is not enough but for sure for me um a key information related to what i said about infrastructure is where can i bring this thing uh once i have a problem with it um i think that's for me like if i would summarize it i mean there's lots of other things but uh, i would put this on the table to be short okay um emma do you want to add anything to the this information issue um, I mean, in, th in terms of uh, data, data is always key and it's always a big challenge, I think, in anything that, that's policy uh, development related. Uh, so anything that can be done to, to improve the quality of data is, is a good thing. Um, I would suggest that maybe, I mean, one thing that I think the Commission is quite good at doing is providing uh, guidance to accompany legislation. Um, so guidance on how it should be implemented, uh, guidance on, on reporting, for example, the criteria, the information that needs to be reported, um, how it can be calculated. So you have a, a, 
a comparability between the, the data that's reported. Um, so I think that's that's somewhere where action is, is probably needed to provide guidance to, to producers so that they know uh, exactly what to report, how to report and when to report. Uh, and one other thing that I think uh, Jean-Marc also just alluded to uh, slightly is that um, once you have that data, it's important to do something with it. Um, you know, we're not just, I, don't, I assume that the data is not just being collected just active interest, you know, it's it's to be to be used. Um, so I think it's important to ensure that there's the right kind of follow up and analysis of, of the data that's gathered. Is it really contributing to the development of, of more sustainable products? What needs to be done in the future? Does the, the reporting need to be changed? Is more information needed? Uh, so I think that it's important to have uh, ownership of that data and to, to use it in, in the best way possible to achieve the, the sustainable product uh, uh, objectives. Um, William, I'll come to you in a second on this information question. And just, just back to Carl uh, quickly. I mean, uh, Carl, with all this data and information that uh, industry has been asked for, uh, do you see opportunities for innovation uh, or, or new business models in any way? Well, before, before I get to the opportunities, uh, which are definitely there, William has mentioned some of them in his uh, initial statement. Um, I'd, I'd like to respond to, uh, to, uh, to a few issues here. Um, um, Emma has basically described a system of different layers of, of information, uh, um, general information or data, and then it gets more specific as you move up uh, the pyramid. Um, it's still a horizontal approach, and I, I think that maybe uh, we are slightly, or not slightly, we are heavily underestimating uh, the complexity um, of uh, products um, from, from, from the industrial background. Um, when, when, you, when we start on the simple side and we look at a t-shirt, uh, the textile products, uh, we, we have relatively simple products uh, that consists of a limited uh, number um, um, of materials and it's relatively easy to, to collect the respective data on such a project, uh, product. Um, if, if you move on um, to a sneaker and then you move on um, to a cell phone uh, or to a hairdryer, um, you already have more complex products and maybe the example of the hairdryer is already showing that it may not be so easy um, uh, to collect um, the right data which, which is really meaningful and, and which is giving us uh, um, progress, but it's still possible and the hairdryer is still a mass production product. The hairdryer is a totally primitive product uh, compared uh, to, to a forklift truck, um, um, uh, to a machine tool, um, to, to a filling line uh, for water bottles, um, um, a real primitive product. Um, and, and we are talking about a totally different um, level of complexity. And that also applies um, to collecting the right data um, on such um, industrial products. Uh, we have value chains that are not just three, four, five steps, but that are maybe 20, 25 or 31 steps um, from the raw material to the ready-made uh, machine. We have thousands or in some cases, ten thousands of, of components going into such a machine. And I think we're underestimating the complexity. And this is why um, we, we, we still believe that the horizontal uh, approach is not the smartest and most efficient uh, solution. Um, and we would apply the resources um, in designing now uh, this new regulation much more efficiently uh, if you take it uh, by product by product and start with those products where the highest leverage um, can be achieved. 
Okay, thank you. Will, William, try and uh, respond to all those comments on information and data, please. <laughs> yes, thanks. I, I'm re reminded of the, the phrase TMI, too much information. And um, yeah, I, we're not underestimating the complexity, um, but I think it's very important to understand that we're not looking to um, build massive servers with all possible data on all possible products. We're looking um, as I said, through this process to identify the most important bits of data um, for different product groups. Now, um, that might mean, for example, I, I spoke to um, a woman who was building recycling plants in Flanders for textiles um, a while ago. She said, if I have um, a PVC print on a synthetic garment and it gets into my lot, it ruins the batch. So just by having that, um, uh, it, it could be something else, it could be a dye or a glue or whatever, in whatever product. There can, there can be one thing which can ruin a batch, which can, which can render unviable recycling and can contaminate uh, a lot. We need to know about that, that that's just one piece of information. Uh, we need to identify those important bits of information. Now, if Porsche can trace the, um, the origin right back to source of all of the materials going into a Porsche Taycan, which they're now doing, um, because they think it's worthwhile business-wise and in terms of due diligence and so on, um, then I think that we can put together a process where we identify those bits of information which are really killers in terms of ruining value uh, if, if that information is not made available along the line. And I, I predict, I mean, we'll see in a few years, but I predict that we will see um, with the European Digital Product Passport um, those important pieces of data um, being obligatory to be attached via the unique identifier to that product as it makes its path through. But I predict that we will see a lot more uh, information voluntarily made available. Um, so I can give an example. If you look at the, um, the batteries regulation, in there we have the obligation to have a, a unique identifier on every electric vehicle battery. Uh, it's in co-decision at the moment, so we, we can't predict the, the outcome. But uh, the Commission proposal has a unique identifier uh, obligation. And then there's an annex with a series of types of data which would have to be attached to that. And there's B2B, there's B2C, and there's B2G, business to business, business to consumer, business to government. Um, if you look at what's already happening in parallel with the Global Batteries Alliance, where BASF and uh, BMW and Circularize and various uh, public and private bodies globally are working on identifying the systems interoperability and data, which they think that should be attached to electric vehicle batteries, it's much bigger because they realize that if you can work out the optimum moment when you take the battery out of the vehicle and use it for energy storage, and if you can make that market work by, you know, making sure that the the uh, um, the performance is measured um, and that the the residual value is is calculated and the and the buyers are aware of that, then you know there's a there's a business case for it. So I can envisage that in many product group areas we will have um, additional add-on data coming voluntarily from the private sector, um, and what we uh, require in terms of the European Digital Product Passport um, will be very small, uh, but very important data. Um, we've got a number of uh, good questions that are, that, are, that are coming in. So let me turn to some of those now. 
Um, uh, first one uh, to, to yourself, uh, William. Will the new criteria, uh, besides material efficiency parameters such as recyclability, repairability, etc., also look at environmental impacts of products, carbon footprints, and pollution? And this is from Lisa Klutz from OVAM. To you, address to you, William. Oh, thank you, Lisa. And Yes, thank you very much, uh, and uh, hello to Lisa. Um, we are looking at um, the the possibility of including product environmental footprint data um, to the the passport. And one thing I should say, actually, because this this links to what Emma was saying earlier about um, a lot of existing um, data and horizontal data. Um, there is product generated data um, which we would need to to. Um, consider, but there is also data which is existing in a, in other places, not not with the producer or the the source. Um, so the skip database is one example for chemicals, product environmental footprint data, um, and the idea would be that through the European um, data space for smart circular applications, which we announced in the data strategy, um, we would be able to bring together those data sources without. Um, having to require companies to input large amounts of um, data which uh, is not there so you'll be able to create those those interlinks um, so that is what we're looking at and uh, that is certainly on the cards in the impact assessment okay. we have another question here um, from Lucas M uh, circular economy also means making waste a resource how can the SPI help waste operators bring out uh, the value of waste? Um, uh, Joe Mark, uh, would you like to uh, answer that one? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, one of the challenges, and, and, and William has, uh, has already raised this, um, that, that, that recyclers have uh, these days is actually not knowing what comes into the recycling plants. That, that could be plastic, but also metals, etc. And one of the challenges for the recyclers in general is that if you put like a mixed material in, even if it's the same polymer or the same alloy, etc., um, not having full uh, knowledge of what, what goes in, then the, what goes out as well is, is going to be lower quality. So quality is incredibly important. So from that perspective, knowing what is in the and the products is going to be key to ensure that recyclers do their job in produce uh, quality uh, recyclate. Um, so uh, that is for sure. But uh, but I think it's also like um, on top of that, um, this information allows not only for better recycling, but also for better disassembly. And uh, that's for me. It's it's it might look like that's a part of a reuse, etc. But it's a key part for recycling. Lots of problems we're having today in Europe is that instead of uh, disassembling and then keeping the materials and recycling, what we do is just we just shred them, we crush them, and then uh, you can only downcycle in the best uh, scenario. So uh, for sure, I think um, it's uh, the, the 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 DPP, um, if well played, can be very important tool to have the feedback mechanism between producers and actually the the end of pipe managers, which are the recyclers. Okay, thank you. We have, an, have another question here from Alan Dez from uh, FEA. Question again to William. Uh, will the Commission specifically tackle the issue of product liability for reused products? So legislation, guidance, etc. Um, 
Um, that's a good question. I understand that um, DG Grow, uh, the commission at the moment, is looking into um, product liability directive in terms of products that are put back on the market. It's a very important question. I think um, uh, Jean-Marc has, has said it, the importance of you know avoiding waste and, and making sure that we have the infrastructure there for repairability and so on. But when you get to the stage where, say, a product is remanufactured, so you take the, the core and you um, replace the worn parts and, and you and you put it back on the market as a um, a new product um, with a warranty. Then, of course, you need to consider the the, the liability for that. Um, I I don't think this would be addressed in the context of the Sustainable Products Initiative, um, but I think it is on the radar in terms of the Product Liability Directive uh, review. Um, Ruben, I, I think you had something you wanted to add to this. Um, well, actually, that was on the previous point of uh, how the, the initiative could help uh, recyclers, if you like, which was to, to re-emphasize the point that we find very important as the Netherlands on uh, recycled content. So as far as we're concerned, the initiative would also really push more recycled content in products, which, of course, would be a good thing uh, for uh, recyclers. As to the point of uh, product liability, I have to say, at the moment, we don't see a problem. So we, we would hope that um, uh, that there isn't one. Uh, but of course, we'd be willing to to think think about that if there's more uh, more data on what exact where exactly the the problems lie. But uh, yeah, I think for us, the the real issue for now is making sure that the products uh, um, are fit for the circular economy that we have on our market. Okay, uh, let me let me come to a, a, a question. Um, someone in the chat here has brought up uh, Skip and asks: Is the evaluation of Skip part of the assessment? for the um, DPP approach. And uh, we know uh, that there are a number of databases that already exist, such as uh, SCIP. For those who don't know, SCIP is the European Chemicals Agency uh, database for information on substances of concern um, in products. It was established under the uh, Waste Framework Directive. Um, uh, but Carl, a question for you, are you, reassured or, or, or confident that there isn't an undue amount of duplication uh, being asked uh, with a, a number of these databases already existing? Well, <laughs> at this moment in time, I, I have to trust William, uh, uh, what he said, uh, that it will be feasible. Um, uh, I have to admit that from our perspective, we, we are a little doubtful um, that it will be, um, but, but we look forward to it. Um, if you look uh, at another example, uh, the Eco-Design uh, Directive, uh, which is also let's say, a fairly detailed and, and, and complex uh, regulation, um, to the largest uh, extent, um, it worked out well. Um, so. There are some people in my industry that have a different um, opinion, but overall, I think there is a there is a positive attitude um, because it created a framework um, which which has a high degree of reliability uh, for the producers um, of equipment. Um, and, and even though it, it also creates bureaucracy and, and additional work, um, at the end of the day, uh, the balance is positive. And I think that's the challenge also now uh, for the new regulation. And uh, we connect this also um, with, um, with our idea not to use the eco-design uh, directive now um, and, and enlarge it or open it up, but leave the eco-design directive as it is um, and come forward uh, with a different directive now um, for this issue here.
Um, and if if uh, you take the equal design directive as a good example, then um, it might be possible. But I, I admit I'm doubtful. And you also have to imagine, um, we heard some uh, examples now uh, from, from, from the big companies, uh, from, from BASF or from the car industry. Um, but the industry we are talking about, um, not just here, but in many other fields as well, um, in, in all European countries, is the classical medium-sized businesses. And those medium-sized businesses simply do not have the resources to come forward with such concepts as car manufacturers um, in connection now with, with the battery value chain um, might do. So we are, we are talking about a totally different picture um, here as well. So every regulation must also be feasible for this kind of company and not for big companies that, that have the resources uh, to handle such regulation. Okay, um, we, we, William, we have a number of questions that are coming in on the uh, digital product passport and how it uh, can deal with um, intellectual property rights. And I know you've mentioned uh, this in, in some earlier comments, but there's a question here asking you to further elaborate on the different options uh, considered. There are actually a couple of questions on this. so. Um, just take us through again how uh, this is not going to infringe the IPR of, of, of different companies. Well, thank you. That's a, a very important question, one which we, we've certainly considered. I think it's fundamental to understand what I said before, that this will be um, a process, product group by product group, with consultation. Um, I think that the important role that the Commission has here is a convening power and power of arbitration. And uh, the, the, the thing that doesn't come out of the, the voluntary um, initiatives that are already happening, the voluntary product passports, which we're seeing in certain value chains, is you don't necessarily uh, convene all of the, the actors. Now, if we can get um, for a, each product group, um, the suppliers, the component manufacturers, the OEMs, the, the retailers, wholesalers, distributors, the consumers, representatives, the recyclers and the waste managers around the same table. And that waste manager can say about textiles, oh, that particular dye or um, uh, material is a problem for me. Um, I need to know if it's in, in a product and it needs to be machine readable. Um, the producer might say, ah, yes, I don't want to divulge that because that's intellectual property. I don't want to... Um, uh, make available information to my competitors or whatever, commercially sensitive information. Um, and then we have to discuss that. And th there will be various possibilities, technological or non-technological, to do that, um, either through things like encryption um, or uh, agreements for certain um, levels of information. So when we're talking about the the design of the um, uh, of the data model, um, there can be different um, access rights and, and um, different filters. So there are technological possibilities. There are also um, non-technological possibilities, such as saying, okay, well, it's not, there isn't an obligation to make it available, or it has to be after five years when the products are likely to come to the end of their life and it's not commercially sensitive anymore. So it has to be, as I say, on a product by product basis, but there are technological and non-technological ways to, to deal with those issues. The key thing is to get people around the table to identify which data is the important data. 
Okay, thank you for, for that. Um, we have a question here from Eleanor Metra Ikern um, that brings up a different uh, issue, and that's the issue of, of, of the social dimension. And she uh, asks, um, a CE will not work if we solely focus on the environmental aspects of sustainability. Is the Commission considering a sustainability due diligence for producers? Will eco-design uh, ever include issues of workers' rights? And what about affordability of products for all? Um, William, please start with, with that one. <laughs> well, the, the scope within which we're preparing this proposal is uh, its sustainability and its circularity. It's part of the Circular Economy Action Plan. Um, as I say, we're using single market tools. But a lot of the examples which we've been looking at, particularly on the digital product passport, are coming from the world of due diligence. Um, I've, I've been looking at examples, like Carl mentioned, that the problems for small and medium-sized enterprises, but I've seen examples of um, due diligence of mining in, in, in Africa where really in, even informal um, enterprises are putting QR codes um, on their materials and they're, they're being tracked and traced as they go through the system. So um, we're certainly getting inspired by a lot of these examples. And I would expect that once we have um, unique identifiers on products attached to the information requirements that we have in the European Digital Product Passport, this will also open up many possibilities for improving uh, due diligence and, and, and the social aspects. And uh, we could also see it being used for, for many other applications. We already see it for things like trafficking of illegal tobacco. Um, uh, and that's already in European, European regulation, a rather more uh, intensive and heavy handed approach because it's aiming at different things. But you could use it for um, uh, EPR, you could use it for um, uh, taxation, you could use it for many other things, having a unique identifier and attaching data to a product. It's not confined to the realms of circularity, but what we're talking about today and what we're trying to do is about circularity. Uh, we receive many telephone calls from other services of the commission uh, that are very interested in what we're doing, um, not least on the, on the due diligence side, of course. Yeah. Uh, Carl, you had a very quick comment on, on this uh, point as well, please. Uh, well, I don't know whether it's very quick um, uh, because it, uh, it is a real complex issue that, that was raised um, by, by the person who asked this question. Sorry, I didn't get the name. Um, how do we um, combine um, the, the social aspect um, of sustainability with the environmental um, aspect um, of sustainability? Because that is also a question of what is the price of the product finally for the consumer? Um, and I start with a, or, or I, I, I do an example from which is also discussed nowadays. Uh, it's it's e-mobility, um, battery-driven electric cars. Um, that are a relatively expensive uh, thing to buy, and um, if if you look into the market, analyze where are electric cars sold today, uh, we're mainly talking about wealthy metropolitan areas uh, where such cars are sold today. 
And, and this is very clear, you know, if, if you take the European picture and you live uh, um, in, in southern Italy or in Portugal uh, or in Bulgaria, and uh, first of all, there is no infrastructure to load your car, and second of all, you simply don't have the money, um, then how do you do it? Um, um, uh, Fiat 500 Electro has an initial price of, of roughly 25,000 euro. Um, a Dacia Sandero um, uh, with a, with a um, small um, engine, combustion engine, um, has 9,000 euro. It's larger than, than the Fiat 500. So if you just want to drive and you have to take some load or you have to take your family along and you have to drive to work and back or whatever, then the question, uh, the social question is, um, do you want to buy an electric car or do you buy a combustion engine? By the way, um, we might have different uh, opinions anyway um, on um, on the environmental um, aspect of a combustion engine, but that's a different story. I just want to point out that the social aspect, if we talk about a hairdryer, let me take this example. If we talk about a hairdryer and um, you, you, you switch, and this is very important, so I, I totally agree to the target, we, we switch to different materials, we, we only use sustainable materials, and we create an infrastructure that a hairdryer, which if you buy it in a supermarket today, has a price of maybe 30 euro, um, and you want to create a, a value chain for repair, and at the same time keep the price of the consumer you're trying to square the circle and and we have to be aware of that um that if if we want to make um if we want to create if we want to create environmental sustainability throughout the whole value chain it comes at a cost this is unavoidable and this is something we i think we have to integrate in our thinking the other aspect of the question was uh, workers rights uh, throughout the value chain um I think we here in this group um, are aware that there is uh, some legislation coming uh, on this one uh, on a on a EU level. Um, um, the, the mandatory due diligence uh, for supply chain—that's um, what the regulation is about—and we already have it in Germany. <laughs> in this case, Germany is a little faster than the EU, um, uh, trying to, to to set an example for this kind of, of regulation, um, uh, which we all find has also a good uh, a good objective um, and it is also very very de uh, difficult uh, to make that regulation uh, in detail work but it's on the way at least which is important okay um we are approaching the last uh, few minutes of of today's debate so uh william i know you wanted to reply to um carl there but i'd ask you to do so and incorporate it in a in a short summing up statement all of you uh, have about 60 seconds to, to give us your final thoughts. And William, let's start with you, please. Well, thank you, Ross. It's been a fascinating discussion. I was pleased that we came on to the social aspects because I think, you know, Gilles Jean has taught us that um, uh, a lot is about how things are presented and that, uh, but nevertheless, we, ha we have to take this seriously. Of course, in some cases, producing a product which is better will cost more. Um, but also, um, it is in the interest of consumers in the longer term to have products which are repairable, which don't break, and which can be used for longer. And I would say that the solution where um, access, well, where, where purchase is going to be more expensive is that we go for shared products um, and we talk about access, not ownership. Now, I know for Germans and their cars, this is a, a difficult issue and it's also very much about uh, status and habit, but um, in general, I think that um, uh, we shouldn't assume that the greener solutions and the more circular solutions are more expensive 
necessarily. Um, but just to, to, to finalize, I think that, that going back to the big picture, we talked about expanding eco design uh, internally in the commission 10 years ago. The Green Deal is really the, the political level motor which is making it happen. Um, and to see circularity at the center of that and see Green Deal as the growth strategy of Europe and after the pandemic as the recovery strategy of Europe really puts it uh, in, in the center there. And I think that um, the Sustainable Product Initiative really has a huge potential because of that. Thank you, William. Uh, Ruben, your concluding remarks, please. Thanks, yes. And uh, to begin with, I couldn't agree more with what William has said. We are also very happy that to see that the Green Deal really takes the front of the, the, the policy attention right now. And we, we really have high expectations of SPI. Maybe to add one point on the social, yes, we think the uh, social element is very important. You should look at this. We should make it all work for everybody. Um, but my hobby horse lately has become to say, we need to realize that um, sustainable is not necessarily mean more expensive, just like more expensive today does not necessarily mean what you're buying is more sustainable. It's exactly this element we have to look at. Uh, we have to set new basic levels of sustainability on our markets. And this will mean a change in where costs land as like today, the costs tend to land with the more sustainable products. This is what we need to reverse to make sure the costs land with the unsustainable ones. And unfortunately, William, that goes back to the polluter pays, <laughs> but we still believe in it. <laughs> and we think this, this is still some, something to depart from. But yeah, really in closing, we really much, very much look forward to the initiatives from the commission and we, we anticipate that this will be a real game changer on the EU markets. We hope it will deliver on that. Thanks. Thank you, Ruben. Uh, Joe Mark, please. Yeah, following up on what Ruben said, um, uh, I think we have a, a, a good opportunity ahead of us. Let's not forget that what makes a product sustainable is the characteristics of the product itself, but also the use that we make of it. And I think that the Sustainable Product Initiative and eco-design, et cetera, is very good at the first part, but it fails to tackle actually the, the use we make of it. Uh, how, uh, how are we going to make it last? How can we repair it, et cetera? So I feel that, um, uh, we need to like think um, about products, but beyond products, because products need to fit in a bigger kind of a frame. And I go back to what I said in the beginning, we need to build the infrastructure that allows for a sustainable use of products, because you can have sustainable products that are used unsustainably. So there's an opportunity for uh, job creation, for transparency, for safety, for closing the loop, and actually to build back better, honestly, I, I couldn't agree more with what uh, William said. It's an opportunity to, to now create infrastructure for actually using things sustainably, because uh, sustainable products alone will not make it. Thank you, Joe Mark. Uh, Emma, over to you, please. Thanks, Ross. Um, yeah, uh, like everybody, I think I'll be very interested to, to see the proposals when they're uh, published uh, at the start of next year. Um, I think if, if they're well designed and, and also well implemented, then the, the um, SPI and the uh, digital product passports um, have a, a lot of potential benefits. Um, so related to environmental uh, improvements, also benefits for regulators to help them to keep track of uh, improvements in sustainability of products. Um, benefits also for business to demonstrate their environmental credentials and what and what they're doing to to help the circularity um, and also for consumers to to give us the the information that we need to to make the right uh, sustainable product choices um so yeah I, I look forward to seeing the proposals when they're published uh, at the start of next year thank you emma and carl please 
the good thing is we really we, we all agree on the object objective and i like this very much you know that gives us already a consensus which which is not usual nowadays so we, we agree on the objective and we probably also agree on on, on the tools um, to a large extent uh, my plea one more time is to make it a, a differentiated uh, tool um, um, make legislation smart and efficient use your resources in such a way that uh, you regulate those things with the highest leverage first uh, and maybe those things with, le with less leverage uh, um, later on um, and last not least um, make it um, now a, a transparent process we do not feel that the process has been very transparent uh, so far um, the, the results of the public consultation um, have not yet been publicly shared and it was not yet possible for us uh, to give uh, input to the impact assessment. So um, I think if you make this a bottom-up process um, in, in involving uh, stakeholders, then it's going to be a great result. Thank you, Carl. And uh, th thank you to all our panelists and also our audience this morning. Uh, we await the legislative um, uh, proposal uh, in the first quarter of next year with great anticipation, uh, William. And in the meantime, your active will continue to report on all things uh, circular economy, so please read our coverage. Uh, but otherwise, a very good day to all of you. Goodbye.